Welcome to Native Calgarian. Native Calgarian is being recorded on the lands of the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Blackfoot south of the imposed U.S.-Canadian border, or the Blackfeet. North of the border, the Siksika, Gunai, Bagani of the Confederacy. These lands are now on Treaty 7, which was signed September 22, 1877, with signatories that include the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Stony Nakoda, now the Wesley Chiniki Bearspaw Nations, and the Sutina Nation. We acknowledge all First Nations, Métis, Inuit, status, and non-status across Turtle Island as the keepers of this land. Oki, Mekoches, Chestokom Aki. My name is Red Thunder Woman. My deepest apologies to Blackfoot elders and language keepers as I try to learn the proper pronunciation. I honor the Blackfoot and their lands. I'm Michelle Robinson. I was born Michelle Elliott here in Calgary, another very English name which has afforded me privilege in an English colonial world. My mother is Northern Slavey uh, Dene or Satu Dene, but my Indian Act and Post status card by the Canadian government says Yellow Knives Dene. My father is so Canadian, I am a daughter of the Mayflower and a daughter of the American Revolution while having an Indian Act and Post status card. I acknowledge my Dene lineage and that I was born in Calgary, but my family is not part of the Treaty 7 signatories. My Dene lineage roots me in the land of the Hare people, called the Great Bear Lake people in Treaty 11. I am a native to Turtle Island, and my Dene nation is a visitor to this area of Clincho Tine Indahe and Satu Dene, meaning many horse town, named after the Calgary Stampede. Uh, this area is the Blackfoot territory, and it's Mokinstis, and I would point and tap my elbow as I say that, always acknowledging the Bow River, because a lot of our land features are always um, critical to the land ge geographically. Land acknowledgements are critical to creating a safer space for Indigenous, as well as honoring the host as a guest. Any mistakes or misinterpretations will be on me. I encourage questions so that misunderstandings can be cleared up as soon as possible. I do not speak on behalf of all Indigenous. I just share what I know as I walk my red road. If you're experiencing emotional distress after hearing anything we talk about today and want to talk, call the First Nation and Inuit Hope for Wellness helpline at 1-855-242-3310. It is toll-free and open 24 hours a day, 7 days a week in many Indigenous languages and non-Indigenous. There are distress lines in your area too. My Patreon account is Native Calgarian where you can pledge and support Thank you to the previous donors for already showing your support by listening. If you value listening and can afford to give, thank you. But for those who cannot afford to give and listen in, I'd love from, to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com. Send in your comments, your questions. We are also on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. Um, and I want to give a quick shout out to my super loyal donors of Alexandria, Beatrice, Brian, Celine, Diana, Jocelyn, Judy, Kenna, Kimberly, Leah, Marisa, Natalie, Nathan, Phyllis, Rebecca, The Sprawl, Tiffany, Vanessa, and Veronica. All right. So today I've been, I came across this really great documentary. It's a 10 minute um, uh, film. And I, I finally found out it was Carly that was the producer and, and maker of this. So I wanted to bring Carly onto the show to talk about Indigenous identity, so I want to welcome um, my special guest, Carly. Carly, would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, um, my name is Carly Seilink. Uh I currently live in Toronto, Ontario. Um, I grew up in a small town called Strathroy, 
with my mother and father. My father is from Whitefish River First Nations on Manitoulin Island, Birch Island. And my mother is uh, from St. Thomas, Ontario, um, and her family's from PEI. Mm. Uh, so yeah, I'm a 20 year old university student that goes to Ryerson and I make films. That's amazing. I've seen your film and, uh, there's a lot of, uh, indigenous here. So we have like all of these surrounding nations, right? On the east side, we have Siksika. Mm -hmm. On the west side, we have the Stony. Uh, we have Sutina in the, like the southwest corner part of the city. And then further south are the Ganai. So we have like all of these different indigenous um, nations that are really working on, you know, uh, I hate that it's always kind of arts, but it, it that ar arts and culture kind of all go together, right? And, uh, but mm -hmm. at the end of the day, that's how we storytell, right, is through that those mediums. And li listen, you're on my podcast. And for me, it was a really hard <laughs> stretch for me to go, what do you mean I'm doing art? Um, and talking about my culture through a podcast. So, you know, it, it's just great to see all of these different mediums coming out and especially these documentaries like the one you did. So I just really enjoyed it. And I was really grateful that you'd be willing to talk to me about it on your sh on the show. Um, would you be willing to kind of talk a bit about the, sh uh, your, the movie from your perspective? Of course. Um, so the documentary is called Am I Indian Enough? Um, the title is actually derived from a little brainstorming session I had off the bat um, with some friends and colleagues. And I was thinking, we, I, the, the whole film came about because this past semester I was in a documentary class um, and we needed to create a proposal. Sure. So I had no idea what I wanted to do, um, <laughs> but I know I wanted to do something Indigenous. Uh, when I look at my own portfolio, I feel like it lacks Indigenous uh, perspectives and points of views. And I feel like I have a duty to tell those stories. Mm. Um, so I wanted to do something. And I was talking about my own identity and somebody said, uh, somebody's talking about identity in Toronto and they said, well, I don't know if I'm Indian enough. And that just stuck with me. Yeah. Um, the idea of using the word Indian, I, I don't like the word. Yeah. A lot of people don't like the word. Yeah. Um, but I thought it was an important, um, and it almost juxtaposed the film. Mm. Uh, so the whole film is about, um, I'm more or less focusing on uh, the younger generation, so millennials in Toronto. Those that uh, not necessarily grew up in Toronto may have come here for work or uh, schooling. Yep. And talking about how they feel being Indigenous in Toronto and how that, how they deal with that on a daily basis, um, what they experience. Mm. And uh, yeah, so it was, it was a hard documentary to make. Mm-hmm because I had no idea what I wanted to do. I, was, I wasn't the sole creator of it. I had uh, 2.5 other people. The reason why I say 0.5 is because somebody ended up dropping out of the class. Oh, fair, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, fair. Um, well, and I want to give them a shout out if you're comfortable with that, because I don't want to make it, well, this is only yours, but I, I do know, right. like, it takes a team. And if it wasn't for my husband, I definitely would not be podcasting. Um, you know, and I'm really lucky that I know some of the other podcasts, Indigenous podcasts have given me shout outs on Twitter and such. And if it wasn't for that, 
other people may not be listening. So you're more than welcome to name drop whoever you'd like here. And I'll like, I'll give a shout out to Toby, uh, the tattoo artist in Toronto, because if it wasn't for him yes. sharing your documentary, I probably wouldn't have stumbled across it quite yet, maybe in six months or so. But you know, it's kind of the point. And especially <laughs> when it comes out right away, um, you know, I want other folks to see it because when I when I read it, am I Indian enough? Absolutely. The title Indian, um, I love to use it, especially when talking about the Indian Act, because I'll tell people, mm -hmm. you know, if we had a Jew Act, if we had a Black Act, if we had a Gay Act, people would lose their mind. But in Canada, mm -hmm. because race, racism and colonialism is so normalized, it's perfectly acceptable that the Canadian Constitution has the um, Indian Act embedded in it and that we are wards of the states and have these cards. And those of us who have cards that are lucky enough, like I'm trying to go through the status uh, procedure with my daughter. And what a pain mm -hmm. in the butt this is, let me tell you. Right. It should be really simple. <laughs> you know, like I birthed this child. So it should be next mm -hmm. number is hers, but no, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> Absolutely. I completely agree. Yeah. So, but, um, so, yeah, so sorry, uh, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. Um, so I had uh, the two people that worked on it um, very closely with me, uh, Jibby Kwan, who is uh Chinese Canadian. He is originally from BC. Sure. Um, and he goes, he lives in Toronto now. We all go to the same school. Um, amazing photographer, one of my honest, closest friends. Uh, I don't have many friends, but the friends that I do, they're very close to me. Mm. Um, and another person, uh, Jay Goldman, uh, originally born and raised in Toronto. Um, and the other person, Ryan Spooner, who is uh, Filipino-Canadian. Sure. Um, grew up in the Philippines, came here, went back to the Philippines. Now he's back uh, in Toronto. Um, so those people, it was hard, in a sense, to work with them as much as uh, I care about them so much. Um, I often found myself second-guessing how I want to do things because of it, mm -hmm. uh, because they couldn't see it from my side. Yep. But in the sense, they were absolutely understanding and willing to do whatever it yeah. takes to get uh, my vision out. Um, so, yeah, I really honestly couldn't have done it without them. They were really great people to work with. You know, it's amazing when you talk about that, um, how we have folks of different immigrant backgrounds and such that come here because uh, we have a group here in Calgary called Voices. And it was basically mm -hmm. anyone racialized that identified as LGBTQ2+. And I, I don't, I'm mm -hmm. actually straight and cis, but because I'm part of the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women Committee, I seen that huge gap that was there when it came talking about two-spirit and trans. And, um, you know, as a residential school surviving family member, uh, so my, my family went to Indian residential school, but I didn't. Um, I see mm. the homophobia and the transphobia in my own family and how that's affecting those who identify as that within in my world. So I went to this and it was really intense for me and the other natives to really talk to, uh, you know, racialized folks about colonialism because a lot of them don't recognize colonialism here, uh, maybe where they're from. Mm -hmm. And then they'll say, but it's not like that here, not really acknowledging the gravity of genocide here. So um, 
So those were really hard conversations to have. But at the end of the day, like you said, the willingness, the love, the solidarity, and in the end, a lot more changed perspectives on the topic. So that really mm-hmm. was like incredible um, journey for us um, here in Calgary. But I, I can't, you know, I, and it just sounds, I just felt so much parallels in what you were saying about, you know, trusting, trusting your friends that even though they might not fully understand that maybe they'll support you through it. And uh, I've seen that in other like some some liberals are like that, not all liberals, but some are. And uh, just other, you know, depending where you are in the world, right? Um, right. Where you get that support, it's it's so critical. Um, and so I'm so so grateful to hear that you were supported in that way. So, um, so yeah. yeah. No, it was amazing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, um, uh, so the topic itself uh let's kind of discuss a little more about identity issues because uh you know it's interesting so because i'm um half native my a lot of the community here in calgary they always identify me as metis they say oh you're you're a mixed so you must be metis so i have to really clarify who i am and where i come from and um you know that within itself is its own journey and because colonial mindset is, uh, if you're not 100% full blood, you're not. Um, that So that whole concept of even identifying as Indian, like that's a journey for almost all of us. And I say that as a 42-year-old woman. So I, you know, here, here I am talking to a 20-year-old uh, documenter, uh, filmmaker, and I'm grateful to doing that. And I just feel like you're having the exact same conversation. Isn't it amazing all across Canada we're having these identity issues about who am I? Absolutely. I think um, with identity, I always found it as something, uh, like I don't think I'll ever fully find my identity or fully understand my own culture. I see it as a a constant journey with uh, lots of highs and lows. but I find that it is something that a lot of people do relate to and that they're kind of stuck in this uh, middle of they don't really know how to uh, identify or what to identify as. Um, like, for instance, when I was younger, I had no idea I was a person of color. <laughs> right. I had no idea. Because yeah. um, I was like, oh, I'm my, my mother's white. I can't be a person of color. And I, I was young, but in a sense, I was like erasing my whole identity. Yeah. Um, until I came to fully understand it, and I was like, "Wait, that's not right. I have to be." Yeah. Um. So yeah, it, it it's been a journey till now, and I'm sure it'll be a journey until whenever. <laughs> well, uh, I I think part of the other reason why I wanted to have you on was this: is that, you know, I'm 42. And I today mm-hmm. can say I'm a proud Dene woman today. It took me a lot of long time to get here. And I feel like Absolutely. you're already having this conversation at the age of 20, but I'm 42. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if it's just this time and in, in space and era, or if it's just our youth are just so brilliant. Cause I have a 12 year old daughter and I swear to God, mm-hmm. she's like 40 years old. She's ha- half the time. She's more <laughs> mature in a conversation than I am. So, you know, I just think of the, like, I wish you knew as youth how inspiring it is for you to know who you are so much sooner than I ever did. And I'm so grateful 
it's not just you, it's so many youth, how, how many of you are inspiring, even folks like me, to just try not to, you know, uh, box you in into what you have to be, because you're so much further along on this than I ever was at your age. Um, I was in total denial of who I was. Um, I was mm -hmm. trying to, I was in counseling, trying to undo a lot of the domestic violence um, things that I had seen, trying to understand what healthy, unhealthy relationships were. Like I was so far into the trauma of that, that there was no way I could be having discussions about identity and who I was. And, um, and the, the card that was issued to me like I, I hated it in so many ways because um, it was a reminder of the pain of, you know, me being, I was told like way back when, you know, really derogatory things about being negative. And I really internalized a lot of that. And I feel like your generation um, is a little further ahead in the sense where it's like, yeah, you can say whatever you want, but I am definitely not taking that in. But I don't want to put you in a box. Do you want to elaborate on some of the things that I was just saying and just give me your your unrestricted point of view? Like, don't feel like you have to uh, save my feelings in any way. Absolutely. Um, I will not. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, when, when, I, when, it, when you talk about younger generations, uh, kind of, I, I see it in the sense that we're fighting back. Yeah. Um, all the people that I know, we kind of own who we are. Um, we, we, we own it unconditionally. Um, and we don't really let other people put us in that box, like you were saying. Yeah. Um, before coming to Toronto, I put myself in that box. I grew up in a very homogenized white community. Yeah. I didn't want a lot of people to know. It's not that I didn't want a lot of people to know that I was Native. It's more or less something that I didn't talk about. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to talk about. I didn't want to have those arguments. Because the constant argument I would get was like, do you pay for taxes? You mustn't pay taxes. And I hate that argument. Yeah. Because I swear people are dumb. <laughs> like, quite honestly. Yep. <laughs> um, like, don't, don't give me that argument if you don't have anything to back it up. Yeah. Anyways, yeah, totally. To Toronto, I I started to surround myself. One of my closest friends, her name is Ayat. She's Sudanese Canadian. Um, she was the one that really inadvertently pushed me to kind of own my indigenous self Amazing. and do it, um, act it out. Not act it out, but like just be myself. Um, because I saw her just owning who she is owning um, her own identity and her sexuality and everything that encompasses that. And it was inspiring to me to see this person my age um, owning who they are without well, with consequences, but ignoring those consequences because she loved who she was. Yeah. Um, Amazing. So that really pushed me to, hey, I'm Native. I need to, I, I always felt lost. Yeah. With my identity. Um, like my father didn't talk a lot about it. Yeah. Um, growing up, I went to powwows. That's about it. Um, and it, it was actually in high school where I started to open myself up just a little bit, a little bit at a time. Um, and I started to kind of learn more about my culture. And I don't 
I'm not angry at my father for not teaching me about it. It was more or less he had some internal, he has some internal struggles that stops him from talking about it. And I totally understand. Um, I didn't understand when I was younger. I was angry at him. But now understanding about these struggles, I... I'm more open and I feel like in a sense, he's very much like he wants me to go find my own answers and then come back to him. Yeah. Um, and have a conversation with him. Um, he's, he's quite weird like that, but I really appreciate it. Sure. Um, um, so yeah, I feel like my generation, a lot of times we're pushing back and owning who we are. Um, because, I'm not sure. I, I think that in a sense, we see what older people in our community have gone through. Yeah. And we don't want to deal with that anymore. No, and you shouldn't. Um, it makes me angry. You have to at all have the taxes combo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. And we want to push back and make that change. Um, like you said, your daughter, she's extremely smart. And I think kids are honestly some of the smartest people ever. Yeah. Um, because they have they have such a mind for whatever they want. And I think um, I honestly think like I feel like generations always say, "Oh, the youth will be the change." And I, I I'll still say that. I feel like the next generation will be the change. Yeah. Um, I know my mother's generation says my generation will be the change. And I think it's really time for that change. Me too. Um, And we really need to get the ball rolling. Uh, Well, and I'll tell you this, though. My generation is the generation that everybody will listen to. So I think our responsibility Mm -hmm. as my generation is to listen to you, elevate your voice, elevate my daughter's voice, elevate the voices of the youth, because... Um, their voice matters the most. And like, for me, like even this week, I was just relentlessly arguing that, you know, these male politicians going after, uh, cause I live in Alberta. So in Alberta, there's a whole propaganda machine of pro oil and, um, right. anti-indigenous rights and, you know, um, erasure of a, a indigenous identity in order to facilitate a lot of things. And the only um, indigenous they're willing to acknowledge are the ones that are, you know, pro industry. And um, mm-hmm. so that like I, uh, Greta Tungbird, she is like the absolute um, kryptonite of Alberta. And there's so many politicians want to be politicians that uh, go after her relentlessly. And I like, I cannot imagine using my platform to attack a 16-year-old girl, well, let alone not elevate your voice or my daughter's voice or other youth voices that are are really, you know, thinking outside the box for change. Whereas, like, even myself, I catch myself all the time being really caught in a little conservative box. So to have your voice being speaking up and, and others, but I, I think my generation has a responsibility because we all know people won't listen to the youth. We know that. It's just a, uh, just as there's racism, sexism, there's an ageism and, and a bias against mm-hmm. elevating youth. So I, I just throw that out there because for anybody who's my age or older, I'm just hoping they'll be using their platform to elevate others, especially the, the youth. And uh, if if people don't see their responsibility in that, because people will listen to 
you know, 40 and older, but they won't listen to for uh, under 40, really. So we have a responsibility to elevate that voice. And, uh, and I really like Greta, don't get me wrong, but I have my own issue with the fact that, you know, Indigenous have been talking about climate change and been on the front lines of um, environmentalism since the beginning. And yet, our voices are still not really propelled. And she's only now starting to say, listen to these other voices. So absolutely. Yeah, I think that's one thing I'll never get is the idea that um, younger generations are written off yeah. as uh, maybe not smart enough or not uh, mature. Yeah, not smart enough. Inexperienced. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And I know that's not um, fair. It's not fair at all because you guys are well past this. Um, I would argue you're more mature because you're not having the, well, is this person like queer or what? And I'm saying that in a derogatory mm. way, the way I was raised, as opposed to the more socially acceptable way that it was the youth who taught me to start using the word queer in a good way. And I felt really uncomfortable <laughs> doing that because I came mm-hmm. from the era where like George Make- Michael was made of made fun of relentlessly to the point that when I hear George Michael, I still cry thinking about that homophobia. Right. Yeah. So, you know, um, it, it it's it's insane to me that the youth have the best ideas, the strongest voice. Like there's no you can't argue with Greta about the science and uh, climate change. Yet the men out here in Alberta they literally devote their life to doing that. And they're so privileged and rich enough they can. It's ridiculous. It's so ridiculous. So, but that's just one issue. I mean, obviously, there's so many more issues and including the identity issue that I think you were so well put together because uh, another component of it that I wanted to touch on was this. Um, so my grandmother went to Indian residential school And then there was this really funny gap in my family. So I have tons of aunts and uncles. And my mom is the oldest. um, Well, the one that lived after Indian residential school. Um, She was the first one to live. Anyway, um, so the the top part of the kids didn't go to Indian residential school. They went to St. Patrick's Catholic school inside the city of Yellowknife. So they had uh, forced them from where they used to live into Fort Providence. And then they resettled into Yellowknife. And, um, but my youngest uncles and my youngest auntie did go back to Indian residential school because my grandmother uh, didn't have her. Well, I, I don't know if family wants me to talk about this, but at the end of the day, some of my aunts and uncles went, and my, but my mother didn't. And where was I going with all of this? Oh, I know where I was going with this. So she's from Yellowknife, so arguably an urban setting. But I mean, anyone who's been to Yellowknife in the 70s knows like that's like a podunk town. And compared to today, like today they have lots of, um, you know, um, industry and lots of uh, resources and such that they never had back then. But it was still considered a town then, right? And um, and then she came here to Calgary and had me. So we're how many uh, generations removed from being like traditional living on the land? And um, and you kind of touched about you know what what is it like to be an urban indigenous person? And uh, that was something that I feel like uh, we don't have enough conversations about. Like you know, over fifty percent of indigenous are now in urban settings, but if it wasn't for the Blackfoot and the Sutina and the Stony kind of adopting me in, I really wouldn't have a lot of exposure to Indigenous culture. So I wanted to ask you, 
what is it really like being, um, you know, as a 20 year old urban indigenous girl in the city of Toronto, what is like, uh, urban culture like for you in Toronto? It's very gentrified. Um, in the sense, I feel like, uh, I, I live in the spaces that are very gentrified. It's all homogenized basically. Um, <laughs> it's hard. Uh, I often to, to access anything indigenous, uh, in the sense, uh, events or, um, uh, indigenous specific healthcare or resources. Um, it's hard. Um, I talk about in my film very briefly how I felt pushed away mm-hmm. um, from resources. Um, that comes down to me being white passing, but I also feel like it comes down to the lack of resources. Yeah. Um, in my like in my program in my year, there's only one other other indigenous person. Mm. Um, I would say it's eighty percent uh, white people. Yeah. And 20% are people of color. Um, and it's very hard to look around and not see yourself. Uh, even walking down the street, it's hard to look around and not see yourself yeah. uh, and other people. Um, yeah. I often don't think about it as much as maybe I should. Uh I guess I, I, it's that's kind of a hard question. Um, it is. I went to Toronto hard. and yeah. I seen like all of the roads have like crowns on them. Like it's so colonial mm-hmm. there. I can't imagine mm-hmm. how hard it is to try to carve out, you know, a daily smudge, carve out any type of daily culture at all there because uh, it is just it's so, you know, pan-indigenized when you do see something indigenous. Um Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've had conversations here about um, two of the popular uh, native groups that there are. And a, a Mohawk comes up a lot because they're seen as warriors and the Haida because of their art. And, uh, you know, and, and I'm, of course, we're way in the middle, <laughs> you know, my Satu Dene people way up in the north. Um, you know, like they're they're never caught in that conversation. And oh, fun mm-hmm. fact, though. North of 60, um, their liaison was a northern slavey Dene. So he, I guess it was a lot of northern slavey Dene that was that was said in that show. So that's something that I've wanted to, like, get the whole series and watch it just so that I can understand what it sounds like to hear my language. Um, but uh, for me, too, like, hearing that, um, what, you're, what you're talking about, the first time I ever went to the Calgary Friendship Center, this would have been in... I don't know, 95-ish, they they would hardly even recognize, they wouldn't even acknowledge my existence, right? And uh, this was when mm-hmm. I was having total identity issues and I needed uh, counseling and I was I was really in a, in a horrible place and um, they wouldn't really even acknowledge me. And then today, a very different ser- scenario, um, I know, I know, I feel very comfortable down at the Friendship Center. But, uh, you know, and there's a lot of folks from everywhere, all across Turtle Island. Um, I know a fellow from the States that married a Blackfoot woman. I know a lot of the Cree come to Calgary to, you know, do their thing. Um, we have lots of folks from Canloops area. So, th- like, there's such a wide mixture of Native people that are here in Calgary for jobs and everything, right? So, um, and, and in Toronto, like, you just don't see it. When I seen 
like Toronto pride and their total like mess up on the land acknowledgement. I just, mm-hmm. I was like, how hard is it? Cause this is like millions of, of people, like how many native people must live there and they couldn't get a single land acknowledgement right before, you know, pride. That's insane to me. I couldn't believe it. It is. Yeah. You brought up a really good point about uh, friendship centers. Um, I'm I'm Ojibwe, I'm Nish, and so I feel like there's a lot there's there's a big population of Nish people in Toronto. Yeah. Um and I like I actually I've I've been to friendship centers just a few times. Um I small plug, my auntie my my great auntie actually pioneered the friendship centers in Toronto. Oh, um, what's your auntie's and, name? And, What's her name? Uh, Lillian McGregor, Dr. Lillian McGregor. Amazing. Uh, and so she was a great pioneer of these centers. Um, and she did so much amazing work for Indigenous people in Toronto. Um, but I feel like it's been lost over the years. Sure. Um, there's a lot of uh, drama around resource centers and friendship centers in toronto unfortunately um i have colleagues that have uh, either work there or they go there a lot but no longer feel comfortable right or safe going there yep um because oftentimes they are talked down to uh or bullied for some some odd reason yeah uh which i think is really unfortunate because for a lot of people, these friendship centers are a basis of uh, accessing their community, yeah. uh, and and it, it it's it's hard for them to don't feel safe, yeah, or they feel like they just no longer feel comfortable going. Yeah, I know. I uh, I experience that a lot too, and it's funny too. So I graduated high school in '94, and a lot of the um, post-secondary education institutions now have like some sort of like indigenous center and uh Mm -hmm. when I went there wasn't one but when well when I went um so I went to I wanted to go to the university but at the time I had zero clue how to access any of that my guidance counselor was completely useless um this was still before a time when you had to like you know pay long distance charges to even call Yellowknife uh, from Alberta. Mm-hmm. So like it, it was really inaccessible and calling Ottawa was impossible. Uh, you were just put on these endless loops of like two hour phone calls and then you'd get hung up on. So there were, it was like literally impossible for me to access, um, the so-called education that's available for indigenous people. Um, and at the time the UFC didn't even have like a, a center. So, I ended up, you know, uh, working full time and taking night classes at SAIT and they didn't even have like a indigenous center. But it, what I'm trying to say is the same thing what you're explaining with the Aboriginal friendship centers today, I'm hearing the exact same things about, you know, these so-called centers for indigenous people, because we as indigenous people haven't healed. Um, like for me, uh, at a certain point, I had to realize that every single day, is the next day of my healing journey because um, if we don't heal from the inside we just continue and perpetuate that um, uh, intergenerational trauma 
And uh, I don't want that for my daughter. So that's why I'm going through it. And I try to make her very aware of what, you know, um, internalized racism is, but also that projecting internalized racism. People call it lateral violence. I call it colonial violence because it was taught to us. Um, mm -hmm. and, and ultimately, like even the places that are supposed to be safer spaces for us, like, uh, you know, post-secondary centers or friendship centers, actually become a place of, of continuous violence. Um, I experience a bit of it on social media from our own people as well. But, you know, ultimately, that's a reflection of the other people and where they are in their healing journey. Because some people, like you were talking about your dad, um, I can speak for my family and say there are people in my family that will absolutely never acknowledge intergenerational trauma. They won't acknowledge the, mm -hmm. you know, um, unhealthy relationships that have come from all of that and they won't work at fixing it like there's going to be a few more generations in my own family that this continues because not everybody's on the same page a uh, few of us are like there's uh, I have some really healthy aunties and uncles and um, and their kids are doing great as well as a result of their healing journey and um and that's that's just what I'm doing as well. I just started. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of Wellbriety. Uh, there's it's basically the twelve steps through um, uh, medicine wheel teachings, and it was really done mm -hmm. through the U.S. It was uh, they have instead of Indian residential schools, they call them boarding schools, and um, there was like this hoop with a hundred feathers and this journey of all these elders telling their stories of Indian boarding schools, and um, Anyway, what came from that was uh, there was a Cree man here from Alberta who was, he's, he's so gay, he's, he really learned a lot about Two-Spirit and tries to teach it and started like the Two-Spirit Journal and things like that. He ran away to the States um, when he realized kind of what he was and built himself a life there. And he was part of the Obama administration that funded uh, the, you know, White Bison Society and such. So... I know it's a legitimate um, teaching and what I do is talk about all of the different teachings of the medicine wheel and we have a lot of Blackfoot that are doing good work with the Alberta Health Services on things like that. So, you know, for us, um, healing will look differently for different people. I personally don't struggle with alcoholism, but this uh, White Bison Society, obviously they talk a lot about that. That's the main focus of what they do, but they also have Mending Broken Hearts. And to me, because it, it talks about unresolved relationships, unresolved uh, trauma, things like that. And mm -hmm. that's kind of where I really fit in because there's so much of it going around. And it, it comes, unfortunately, from our own people, too, because until we all understand what colonialism is and how it has affected us personally and created healthy and unhealthy relationships, like we just we're not going to heal. And uh you know, I, I feel kind of lucky because I had to go through down that domestic violence road and I had to learn about it from that point of view. So that's why I'm here. But I don't know if I ever would have walked down that road if I'd be here either. If I'd just be like the rest of my family and be like victim blaming and, you know, all the rest of it. So um, I guess what I'm just trying to say is that don't internalize in that lateral violence ever. That's not for you. That's not for anybody else who's listening. It's literally something that has been perpetuated through intergenerational trauma done by the Canadian government. And until we heal that, it's just going to perpetuate. And I definitely don't want to 
you know, continue that down the road for my daughter. So, um, and honestly, sounds like you're already there. You just might not have uh, the words to kind of describe all of it. But what are some of your thoughts and reflections about um, what you see in the community and, uh, and, and just from your point of view? Um, in the community, community in general, um, God, uh, sorry, can you, uh, uh, explain that question more? (laughs) Yeah, sure. Well, I just, you know, you were talking about there just not being all the safe spaces that you would think Mm -hmm. that you should have. And that's kind of getting away from the friendship center mandate. Um, but what about like the, the school that you're in right now? Do you have like a, a center and do you feel safe there? Uh, we do actually. Um, it's called RAS, Ryerson Aboriginal Student Services. Um, I had the pleasure to actually work there over uh, this past summer. Um, I worked as a peer supporter. So my job was... Uh, basically supporting peers <laughs> oh great uh, because it was in the summer there were less students um so my job was kind of to upkeep the space there's two spaces there's a <clears throat> a lounge uh with a small computer lab couches um and a kitchen that often has uh free food in the fridge that students can take if they like um, and then there's another space with the offices that have, uh, like, our li- liaison officer, um, academic support, um, all that kind of stuff. Amazing. Uh, it was, I, I, I actually never accessed the uh, services there before I started working there. Um, the reason why, and I actually brought it up to them, was because their offices are often locked. Um, you can't get into their office hallway without uh calling them first so it it kind of felt like you weren't welcomed yeah um, which is something that i find a lot um you have i understand it's there for security reasons um but and again like a first year student i went there and i couldn't get in so i honest i just turned away yeah (laughs) and i left um and i find that that's uh quite frequent, not only in Indigenous resource spaces, but in a lot of uh, these resource spaces. Yeah. Um, the lounge is, a, uh, it, we promote a safe space. You can come in there. Um, you can be who you want to be. Um, status, non-status, uh, anybody can come. Uh, obviously, Indigenous students. Um, but if you need to bring a peer, a friend who isn't Indigenous, that's just as welcomed. Right on. Um, every Wednesday they would have tea and talk. So we would make uh, sweet grass tea or cedar tea and we'd buy lunch and then we'd sit around and just literally just talk for an hour. <laughs> hey, um, that's awesome. Good, right? Yeah. <laughs> it was a good space to kind of just relax um you know like students that were taking summer courses they would come and just chill they needed it right yeah um and especially it it goes all year round um ras itself uh they have internal problems 
uh, and I don't mind saying this because it was brought up by a lot of people. Sure. And they're aware of it. Yeah. Um, working there, I often felt bullied by my boss. Um, and it was unfortunate because as an Indigenous person coming to work in an Indigenous center, I would expect myself to feel just as safe as students. Right. Um, time, at times, I did not want to go into work because of it. Um, but also on the note, there were great people that worked in the office that really supported me because uh, this past summer, I was going through a lot of personal struggles. Um, and so in a sense, I'm really lucky to be able to go to a school that has a center, a lounge and offices and people that are there for you. Yeah. Um, so yeah, in a sense, like I always find there's pros and cons to everything. <laughs> for sure. Uh, but yeah, it, I, I'm very privileged to be able to go to a school that has a center like that because I am aware of other schools within the GTA that have centers, but not much comes out of them, yeah. unfortunately. Right. Um, so yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay. That's good. No, I, I really appreciate you sharing the experience because uh, ultimately I have zero roots in uh, the east part of the uh, country and um, so much is coming from Toronto. And, uh, you know, mm -hmm. when there's like a huge mess up, like with pride, um, it's like, what is going on over there? So it's really great to hear somebody mm -hmm. from your point of view, not just put out this great documentary that's about, what is it, 10 minutes long? Uh, I believe it's 10 minutes and 46 seconds. <laughs> mm. So you put out this great documentary, it's you know, and you're, and you're telling us a bit what it's like to be out there. And, um, like for someone like myself, who's like, okay, I have a 12 year old girl who's going to go to university one day, you know, I'm scared to throw her out into the wolf pack, but at the end of the day, I have mm -hmm. to, where do I send her? <laughs> so if I hear, Absolutely. you know, and, and I wanted to ask you, are, are they doing, cause they're trying to do what's called like indigenizing here. Um, it's their piss poor attempt at trying to do reconciliation out here where they're um, right. for the first time acknowledging we as indigenous people exist and uh, trying mm -hmm. to reflect a little bit of that into the university and they're not doing a great job, but at least they're trying to do something that they've literally never done before. You have to r understand that out here in University of Calgary is like completely funded. It's like almost like private school in the sense where it's like, you know, any science is funded by pharmaceuticals. Um, you're in the Husky room over here. Like everything is funded by um, industry mm -hmm. so that it's all like pro industry, uh, pro oil sands, pro everything, um, you know, almost anti-indigenous just by default. So for them to right. acknowledge that indigenous even exists, like it would be one of the least safe places to put my daughter, I feel like is in the University of Calgary. And uh, so them mm -hmm. trying to do, you know, bring in some of the elders and trying to make some changes, like you can't, uh, decolonize this institution um, after a few years, but at least they're they're recognizing, hey, Indigenous people exist. So, uh, is your university doing any type of uh, you know indigenizing or you know using the term reconciliation as a way to make some changes, or are you still in, still seeing lots of institutional racism? Um, 
both, honestly. Right. Um, Ryerson is named after Egerton Ryerson, um, the guy that basically enforced residential schools. Um, we have a statue of lovely Egerton uh, on our main street and campus. It's, it, he's often been lovely vandalized. Um, <laughs> Nicely I've done, folks. Nicely done. There, uh, for a long time, when I was in first year, there was a big, I don't remember exactly where it started, but there was a big question on, do we change Ryerson's name or do we take down the statue? Um, neither things have happened. Uh, I don't know what the outcome was of that discussion. Uh, personally, I don't agree with changing the name of Ryerson. Uh I do believe that we should take down the statue because it's quite literally a whole example of a man that did a terrible thing. Um, and it's a big statue and it's not even that cute. Um, and, and so talking about indigenizing spaces, um, there aren't many, I can only really speak of my, uh, faculty. Sure. So I'm in the FCAD faculty, with, which is Faculty of Communication and Design, and um, I'm primarily in one building. Um, and there is, uh, from what I understand from the dean, he's very pro uh, decolonization, truth and reconciliation. Um, actually, sorry, to go back to the Egerton, um, wait, I do know the answer to that. Uh, instead of taking down the statue or changing Ryerson's name, they put up a plaque beside the statue. And um, it has to do with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that comes out of Ryerson. Sure. Um, and it was it's basically a plaque that acknowledges uh, the wrongdoings of uh, Egerton himself. But, but it's a small plaque and it, 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 like, I'd rather see the statue go yeah. rather than have a plaque there. Um, I get it was a great attempt, not a great attempt. It was an attempt um, of Ryerson uh, administration to uh, kind of, I guess, meet in the middle almost. Gross. Of, <laughs> uh, <laughs> of, uh, having the statue there yeah um you know uh just to give perspective to you here uh we have another mm -hmm. university called mount royal university and they had this mm -hmm. you know here in calgary because we're out west we don't have the same amount of like colonial uh politicians and such that came out of the west right so we actually mm -hmm. um really glorify awful people thinking well, we'll try to honor them. So like we had Langevin Bridge and Langevin School still exists. And Langevin was the founder of Indian residential schools. And the irony mm. is we had a ton of uh, non-natives that were like so offended that we would want to, um, you know, change the name of the bridge of Langevin Bridge, but they didn't even know what his contribution to Calgary was. He had zero contribution to right. Calgary. So um it, it wasn't a hard um, change for them to make. And they, they named it Reconciliation Bridge, but it's a one-way only, and it was under construction at the start. So it was, like, my mm -hmm. biggest joke to laugh at. Anyway, 
they, they did rename it. Um, but there was a lot of conversation that there should have been a plaque to basically say, you know, this bridge was originally named Langevin Bridge for God knows what mm -hmm. reason. And we acknowledge that um, on our journey to reconciliation, we renamed this to Reconciliation Bridge to acknowledge the harms caused by Indian residential schools. Like we don't have even anything like that. But at Mount Royal, they had this colonial figure that nobody's ever heard of. And uh, they actually took the statue and they busted it apart and they made like birds coming out of its head to kind of signify, oh, wow. yeah, like to you know, new day, it's a new dawn, you know, that whole idea. Mm. And it's a beautiful piece and they put it in the heart of what would have been the very first colonial part of the city called Inglewood. And, uh, and mm -hmm. it's beautiful. And the irony is somebody vandalized it and said decolonize right on it. So there's an article that we that's out there and I'm quoted in it and a few other folks are quoted in it. But it was really important for the artist to say the most important part of this is that at least we're having conversations about colonialism now. And Absolutely. Uh, yeah, right. So so to me, I just think it's really important to kind of hear what you're saying, because I, I mean, we've seen the whole Proud Boys Halifax incident and that Muslim activist that was just brutally, brutally vilified um, on social media mm -hmm. and in the media. And, uh, you know, I just <sighs> Canada's really pushing hard. Um, I'm really politically active, so I see it today on Twitter against Indigenous women. Um, like it's constant against Jody Wilson Rainbow by so-called progressives and such. So it's just really mm -hmm. interesting to see how Canada is pushing back and like with the voting in of all these conservatives that are doing erasure of like land acknowledgements, uh, Indigenous education, all of those things. Like I actually had an elder tell me and and I, I found this really demoralizing and I'm hoping we're going to, this isn't going to happen for your generation, but they basically mm -hmm. said, oh no, they talk, about, the, the white people talk about indigenous people about once every 30 years and, you know, then there's lots of funding and then it dries out for another 30 years and I'm like, oh God, please right. don't let that be true. But I'm kind of seeing that cycle right now where, mm -hmm. you know, and a lot of non-natives just don't really see their role in this whole concept of reconciliation and that whole concept of uh you know making structural changes within these institutions so so that anyway Absolutely. i just want to say hats off to you for your documentary you're talking about this identity and i just really appreciated having a conversation with you about it um i feel like you know this is kind of a West versus East conversation, but in a really great way of like what everyone's trying to do. And I just think, I, I hope you continue doing great work like this and know that you have the support of uh, the very minimum, me. Um, and I'm sure lots of folks out there <laughs> out East are supporting you too. So, um, and you're welcome on my show anytime to talk about any upcoming projects that you're doing or, um, you know, this is literally like Dear Diary uh, today on Michelle's podcast. So if you want to, right, if you want to vent about something or if you want to uh, talk about barriers you're experiencing, anything like that, please don't hesitate to reach out because I'd love to have you on my show anytime to talk about it. And if there's any way you can use this podcast and promote it, self-promote it in your own way, please feel comfortable doing that because uh, I want you to be successful in what you're doing because you're doing great work and you're only 20. Thank you so much. That it was it's honestly, uh, this is my first, I guess, professional 
interview, if you will. Wow. Um, for for work that I've done. Uh, and it was an absolute honor to be able to talk to you and uh, to see you reach out. It was great. Uh, so yeah, thank you so much. Well, and I'm sure once the other natives hear this, they're going to be like, she needs to be on my show and we need to be supporting <laughs> her. So I just hope, you know, like we're watching and that's what happens on social media, right? Is that we see a great work like this and, and, you know, just know that for uh, all of the folks out there, there's more people that want to see you succeed than anything. And, uh, Find your healthy native support network and, and know that you have at least one person in your court out here too. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks for being on my show. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. If you want to hang tough, you can hear how I kind of finish off all of my shows. Um, so okay. basically what I do here is I have a script that I read and I I just try mm -hmm. to remind people. So I'll read it here. And uh, if you'd like to stay on, you're more than welcome to. And, sh and feel okay. free to chime in if, uh, if you want to uh, elaborate on anything I'm saying. Mm. All right. Uh, Indigenous have been talking about the issues, sharing our traumas in reports, commissions, and public hearings, just so it can be regularly disregarded. No more. Honor the words. Honor the treaties. Listen to politicians and their policies and platforms. If they don't recognize the marginalized in their budget with Gender Equity Plus, if they're cutting violence prevention programs and services, cutting Indigenous education, cutting in uh, uterus health choices, gay-straight alliances, know that your vote to that party directly negatively impacts marginalized people. Demand that they implement the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to action, the recommendations of the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, the multiple reports about child welfare reform and the violence prevention, and as well now, 231 calls to justice from the National Inquiry on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women. Denying those reports is a form of abuse called gaslighting. Our people are experiencing extreme racism in the justice, educational, and health institutions, with multiple reports that say the same things. Demand change from election platforms and politicians. If they do not understand colonialism, racism, privilege, sexism, they literally have zero business running. This should be understood by all parties and local politicians, community organizations, sports clubs. Uh, a really great article that I said out loud in episode 62 is Truth Before Truth, how non-Indigenous allies become, or non-Indigenous Canadians become allies. Violence is my everyday reality. Every Indigenous generation has faced it. That's why I started this podcast, to speak freely, without interruption, without tone police, without leadership shaming, without gaslighting questions, as many people don't want to hear Indigenous opinion, but sure think that it's their place to tell us theirs, usually by people who know nothing about Indigenous, know nothing about colonialism, know nothing about the constant surveillance of Indigenous people, our protests, our vigils, and our rights, just microaggressions, people dealing with internalized racism, gatekeepers that survive off the status quo and people who are still really into their trauma and deplete the personal resources. Internal and external racism is an everyday reality for Indigenous people. That's why I needed this podcast as a, a boundary to be heard. But my hope is my daughter and my family will be proud in the future of trying to discuss this, these present day issues in a way that they can understand down the road. I always want to encourage cultural safety Google it, look at it as first aid only for marginalized people where you have to do something 
Having good intentions is not enough. Take action to make change. Speak out against racism. Ask questions with those with understanding. Find allies and create a support system for yourself so that you can help advocate for culturally safe approaches. Excuse me. I want to say thank you to Here to Help BC, um, Indigenous People and What is Indigenous Cultural Safety. That's a good one to uh, Google. Internalized racism and lateral violence is another form of violence Indigenous and marginalized people experience by the structure of racism imposed on these lands by the Indian Act, Indian Residential Schools, and other land-clearing policies. Uh, RacialEquityTools.org has some really good information about internalized racism. Uh, The American Friends Service Committee has some do's or don'ts for bystander intervention. If you witness uh, public instances of racism, anti-black, anti-Muslim, anti-trans, anti-LGBTQ2+, anti-accessibility, or other forms of oppressive interpersonal violence and harassment, and tips on how to safely intervene. And I want to make a very strong suggestion. You don't call the police unless cued by the person. Uh, A lot of people are experiencing harassment right now, whether you're Arab, Muslim, Black, queer, trans, immigrant, or Indigenous, and calling the police can actually be a greater danger for the people being harassed. Don't escalate the uh, situation. Don't do nothing. Silence is dangerous. It communicates approval and leaves the victim high and dry. If you find yourself too nervous or afraid to speak out, move closer to the person being harassed to communicate your support with your body. Teach your kids about accountability in a positive way. Um, And for more information, if you're experiencing emotional distress or if you want to talk, call the First Nation and Inuit Hope for Wellness Helpline at 1-855-242-3310. It is toll-free and open 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. I want to say thank you to my ancestors, my granny, my mom of what strength looks like through your example. I want to say thank you to my dad for teaching me to be strong and blunt. My stepmom for showing me what a proud culture is through your Austrian roots and teaching me how to be a proud Calgarian. It's through you. I'm a second generation proud Calgarian. I want to say thank you to my husband for producing, editing the show. On top of being my husband and childhood friend, he's the father of our child and the support of my journey down the red road. He has witnessed decades of racism and sexism. And to our child that we are blessed to learn from daily, we are honored you chose us. You give me daily accountability to be a stronger, better person. My Patreon account is Native Calgarian, where you can pledge and support. I want to say thank you to Alexandria, Beatrice, Brian, Celine, Diana, Jocelyn, Judy, Kenna, Kimberly, Leah, Marisa, Natalie, Nathan, Phyllis, Rebecca, The Sprawl, Tiffany, Vanessa, and Veronica. Thank you all for signing up. If you did one donation or many and had to quit for financial reasons, please know I appreciate your support. If you value listening and can afford to give, thank you. But for those who cannot afford to give but listen in, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com. You can send in your comments or your questions. We're also on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And I want to end by giving a side eye to all these Calgary rabbits. You're lucky I'm not tradish. And my beautiful cousin would respond, or you'd be in my dish. And of course, our daughter figured out her beagle is a rabbit hunter. So it just shows my husband and I weren't that clever to figure that out sooner. 